Dear Father, we thank you for another day where we come, come together as your people, come together to encourage one another through your word. And we pray for your guidance through the Holy Spirit in our hearts to help us to understand your word, the words of Jesus, the words of God himself, so that truly we will be challenged and not make the wrong judgment. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, I remember reading this quote somewhere. And uh, I thought it was quite deep and profound, so I thought I'd hit you with it first thing in the morning. So here it is. The greatest danger is not the things that we know we don't know, but the greatest danger are the things that we think we know, but we actually don't know. Okay, now, now it's quite deep this time in the morning. But it, it does make a lot of sense, right? The greatest danger is not the things that we definitely know that we don't know, but the things that we think we know, but actually we don't know anything about. So, you know, you might have some growth on your arm, you know, something's growing here. And you think, ah, well, that's nothing at all. I think it's fine. But actually, when you go see a doctor, you find out it's cancerous, right? So you think you know something about it, but actually you don't. Or you might think that it's really good that, you know, you, you open the newspaper and you invest all your life savings in some piece of property in the middle of nowhere in England or something. And you think you know you're doing the right thing, but actually you, you aren't and you're wasting all your savings. Or you think you know how to drive at really high speed, but actually you don't. Now all of these tragic mistakes are witnessed in people's lives and they've led to terrible tragedies. But how much more it is when we think we know about God, but actually we don't. We think we know about Jesus Christ, but we don't. Or we think we know about eternal life, but actually we don't. So the question today is, is what we think we know really the reality how do we know what is really, really right about eternal life, about God and about Jesus? Well, I think that today's passage really speaks along those lines. So let's look at the first part of this chapter, which is um, quite long, but I'm, going, I'm not going to look at all of it. I'm going to condense some of it for you. It begins in verse 1 by saying, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the, Jewish, when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one wants to become a public figure, acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe him. Now it begins uh, this section by saying, after this. So what is this after this talking about? Well, definitely chapter 7 flows from the events of chapter 6. And in chapter 6, Jesus had been going around, uh, in, in if you look up here on this map, right? Uh, he'd been going across the area of Galilee, and he'd gone from this side of the Sea of Galilee to the other, and back again to Capernaum. And he'd done great and wonderful miracles. Uh, these miracles were called signs, signs of healing, and a great feeding miracle where he had fed 5,000 men, at least 20,000 people, with five loaves and two fish. And in chapter 6, we saw there was great worship, adulation, there was great praise of Jesus. But by the end of chapter 6, the people had turned against Jesus and they had left. The healing was good, the feeding miracles were good, but the teaching, remember, was hard, very hard. Jesus had said that he was the bread of life from heaven. Jesus had said that he was the Passover lamb, he was the only way to eternal life. And remember what the people said last week? This is hard teaching. Who can accept it? And everyone left except the twelve disciples. But after this, Jesus seems to have continued his ministry. And next slide, the ministry 
seems to have concentrated around the, the region of Galilee where he was, away from Jerusalem and Judea, the region of Judea, because the Jewish leaders were looking for him to kill him. Uh, we saw that this was happening because earlier on in the book of John, he had healed a man on the Sabbath and it caused the man to carry his mat, if you remember. But Jesus, as he continued his miracles, was very impressive, right? Just as the crowd was impressed earlier on with the healing miracles and the feeding miracles, his brothers, his own family, were impressed with Jesus. They did not believe in Jesus and his identity, but they were very impressed. So they say to him, you know, Jesus, you ought to take your show onto the road. You need to go to the big city, the big stage. And basically they say that you need to do three things with yourself. Right, what are the three things? Next slide. Right. He says, you need to get new disciples, show yourself to your disciples in the south. You need to be seen and you need to show yourself to the world. Now the problem was that Jesus did not agree with them. In verse 6, he says, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. And after this, he stayed in Galilee. Now what does Jesus mean when he says that uh, his time had not yet come, but your time, any time is right? You see, as we've been looking through the book of John, Jesus follows a very strict timetable. His time is not his time. He has an agenda, he has a program, and he follows it very strictly. In fact, nothing has happened in the whole book of John which doesn't happen because it is God's sovereign plan. But the disciples are different, right? Sorry, the, the brothers are different. They, they, they follow their own agendas, their own timetable. They can do anything they want, anytime they want. There is no time for them which is right or wrong. But what does Jesus mean when he says that there is not the right time for me. Not the right time for me. Now, as we've been looking through the book of John, it seems as if Jesus is very aware that there is a right time for everything. And that God himself is, is sort of conducting his ministry according to a timetable. So if you look up here on this slide, next slide, okay, I'm sort of zipping along. You have to sort of uh, follow me if you if you find you have trouble, you can speak to me later. Over and over again, Jesus talks about the right time for him. And things don't happen outside of the right time for these events. So Jesus says in chapter 7, verse 6, the right time for me has not yet come. So he doesn't go to Jerusalem. But instead, later on in chapter 7, verse 30, when he does go, when they try to seize him, no one could lay a hand on him because his time had not yet come. And chapter 8, verse 19 to 20, again, when they tried to seize him, his time had not yet come and they couldn't seize him. So what is the right time for Jesus? What is the time looking forward to? What is this, the goal of his time? What is the purpose of his time? Now, I think that uh, this is a very important question because it sort of explains to us why he goes to Jerusalem the way he does and when he does, halfway through the festival. See, later on, as we go through the whole book of the book of John, not to spoil the surprise, Jesus actually says that the right time to go to Jerusalem is when he is to be glorified. 
Okay, so in the next slide, you can, you can take a photograph of this or take the notes because this actually helps us understand a lot about what Jesus is talking about in terms of time, right? Jesus replied in chapter 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay? So this word glorified comes out over and over again every time he talks about time. Time and glorification are linked. In chapter 12, verse 27, Now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify my name. Chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And then chapter 17, after Jesus had said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. So actually, this whole concept of time has a purpose, right? Jesus only needs to go to Jerusalem when he is to be glorified, right? The the, the theme of glorification keeps coming up. But the glorification is not a human glorification where he goes to 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 the throne or he gets inaugurated as king, but rather his glorification comes when he goes to the cross to leave this world, to die and then to rise again to heaven. So the right time, according to God's timetable, to go to Jerusalem to show himself publicly, is the time where he goes there to glorify himself and go to the cross. That is God's agenda. That is God's program. That is God's timetable. So I know that some of you in your Bible study say, hey, how come Jesus, uh, he's so contradictory. He says to his brothers, hey, I'm not going, I'm not going. Right? Then he goes halfway through to the festival and he shows himself in secret. Well, because for him, the brothers want to show him publicly Get him to do all the miracles, to be seen, to, to, to raise his profile. But for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, it is actually to go there. When he actually shows himself publicly and confronts all the leaders, that is when he will go to the cross and he will die. Now I think that this is a very, very important lesson for us. Because I think that we can be like the brothers. And I think what the brothers do is a very human thing, isn't it? They see Jesus, they are impressed by Jesus, and they want to set the agenda for Jesus. Don't we want to do that too? We like Jesus, we are impressed by Jesus, and we like to have Jesus set a following program or agenda for, for him to benefit us. Let me show you what I mean. I was going to a popular bookshop uh, just last week, or I think the week before, and uh, actually, in popular bookshop, you can buy some Christian books. Actually, if you if you have a look, right? In the, it's, I think it's in the self help section. And I was looking at the, the the Christian books at the at the popular bookshop, and I, I didn't buy any. But I looked at the the back of the the bookshop, the uh, the, the book, and this is what the a summary of the book says, right? God wants you to succeed in every area of your life, and with His presence in your life, you can. Everything that you touch can be blessed and you can enjoy good success. Start living out the dreams that God has birthed in your heart today. Another book. This book will increase God's favor and soar to new heights of fulfillment. Expand your horizons beyond what you thought you were capable of doing so that you might go even further than you ever dreamed 
of going. Now, it's so funny, right? Because I was preparing the sermon, I was going to the popular bookshop, and I was thinking, is this God's agenda, or is this our agenda? Right? When you look at these books, is this what, is this what Jesus' agenda is for my life? That everything I touch, every area of my life, should enjoy good success? Because surely here, as we look at God's agenda and Jesus' agenda in his life, what was his, Jesus' agenda? Jesus' agenda was to bring living water. It was to be the bread of life. It was to be the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And his timetable, God's timetable, was to go to Jerusalem to be glorified, to die on the cross for the sins of the world. See, I think it's a great danger, isn't it? Because we think we know what God's agenda is for my life, what Jesus' agenda for my life, to be successful in every area of my life, but that's actually not what it is. God's agenda is for Jesus to go to the cross to take away our sins. And if we keep imposing our agenda on Jesus, it will only lead to disappointment and a loss of faith. Now, Jesus eventually goes to Jerusalem, but on his own timetable, on his own uh, way, and he goes only halfway through the feast. And this is what happens when he meets the people there. Now in verse 14, Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak my own. Whoever speaks on their own does not does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law yet? Not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Now, when the crowd first hears Jesus, they are amazed at Jesus, right? They are amazed at what Jesus is doing. But it says there that their amazement comes because they don't know where Jesus gets this teaching from. Now, uh, I guess in, 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 modern, in the modern world, it's, a, it's not a very big deal for anybody to come up, you know, to, to I guess, a pulpit and start sharing from God's Word, right? But in, in, in the ancient world, the rabbis who taught uh, the Bible, they were the best and brightest of Jewish society. Uh, according to ancient records, I remember reading somewhere, uh, people uh, um, in their society aspired to give their daughters to the rabbis to be married. Okay, no, no, I'm already married, so that's okay. Okay, So they were sort of wondering, how is it Jesus, this man who is not under rabbinic training, he hasn't gone to the best colleges or whatever, how can he speak such truths? How is he able to come up with such wisdom? Now, instead of listening to the content of what Jesus is saying, instead of hearing what he's actually teaching, they're questioning, can we trust what he says because we don't know which school he comes from, which college he comes from, which university, which, which teaching center. So Jesus answers them. 
And this summarizes what Jesus says, right? So if you look up here on this LCD, for the crowd, right, the normal way in which they receive their instruction from God is God speaks to them through their scriptures, but the rabbis would interpret the scriptures and they would then create a body of, of, of teaching, or some tradition, which would then be passed on to the people. But Jesus says that he is not of that way of teaching, right? He is He, he doesn't go through the scriptures and then interact with the traditions and the body of teaching and then come out with a teaching to teach to people. But rather, God says, Jesus says that God speaks directly through him to the people. Again, Jesus says that, well, for the Jewish people, the intermediaries, the rabbis, they speak for the purpose of gaining honor for themselves to show how wise and learned they are. But for Jesus, he's not like that. He works only for the honor of the one who sent him. Now, to the question of how they know for sure whether they can trust Jesus, what authenticates Jesus' message? Well, Jesus says, if you truly desire to do God's will, if you know God's will and you want to obey God's will, then you will know that I speak from God, that I am a man of truth. You see, following Jesus was not an intellectual decision, right? It's not uh, whether you have high IQ or whether you're smart or dumb. But Jesus says it is a, a conscience moral decision. For the person who desires to follow God, they will be able to test whether Jesus' words really are God's words. See, it's almost as if, if, you, if you're used to listening to God, that when you listen to Jesus, you will be able to say, hey, these things are the same. They are, they're from the one and same author, one and same source. And I think Jesus says this because he recognizes that the crowd will not accept his words. Not because they are not smart enough, not because they are not intellectually bright enough, but because they are not God-centered enough. See, Jesus had already said to the brothers, and the same thing he says to the brothers, he says to the crowds, right? He said earlier on in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Okay, so if you look here, he says later on in verse 19, right? He says, look, has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? See, the decision to reject Jesus by the crowd is not because that is not logical, but because they don't love God and because morally they are evil inside. And Jesus gives one clear example of their evil, their love for evil. And he says, why do you want to kill me? Because God had said through Moses in the law, do not murder and just as a, a doctor is able to tell whether you 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 know you have this disease because of you know you have some symptom or there's one blood test that you do so Jesus uses their desire to murder him as a sign right a, 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 a something that confirms the evil inside of them because the crowd themselves share the desire of the leaders to want to to kill Jesus now the crowd responds, if you look in verse 20, by saying, hey, look, 
you are demon possessed, right? Or like something wrong with you, right? Who is trying to kill you? Now, I think that we really need to pay attention to this passage, right? Because when they say that in verse 20, who is trying to kill you? I don't think that they are really sincere in saying that. I think they know that the religious leaders want to kill Jesus. There are a lot of hints in the passage which show that the crowd themselves are aware of the opposition of the religious leaders to Jesus and want to kill him. You see, look earlier on, right, where it says in verse 13, no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Look at what it says there in verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Look at what it says there in uh, verse, um, later on, when they themselves, and I think in the next chapter, in chapter 8, we'll look at it in chapter 8, when they themselves want to seize Jesus to kill him. See, so when, in verse 20, when they say, you are demon-possessed, who is trying to kill you? It's not a cry of innocence, but rather it's a cry of hypocrisy. They know that people are trying to kill Jesus. They are aware of it. The crowd is aware of it. But they are unwilling to admit the sin and the evil in their lives. And therefore, that's why they reject Jesus. Now I wonder whether we can be like that. That we actually reject Jesus or Jesus' words, not because intellectually it doesn't make sense to us, but because morally we are sinful and evil and we would rather not listen to Jesus. I think that happens to us, isn't it? Because if God sent Jesus, Jesus speaks God's truth, Jesus is a man of truth, Jesus always works for God's honor, then is it because we cannot hear Jesus because we don't recognize God's speaking, God's level of holiness, God's rebuke to us? When God says to us, do not lie, or do not gossip, or do not lust, it doesn't take a moral, it's not an intellectual decision to accept it or not, right? It is a moral decision whether we accept it or not. I think that uh, it's so much easier to choose the easier, less confrontational voices of the world rather than to listen to the very hard teaching of Jesus. Again, uh, when I was in the popular bookshop, I don't know what happened the popular bookshop. But when I was in the popular bookshop, right, I was looking at all these uh, Christian books and I always realized that the covers of these Christian books are all taken up by really big pictures of the authors. Right? Very big pictures. Of, you can go to a Christian bookshop and you see yourself, right? I was thinking to myself, what a contrast to Jesus, isn't it? Because these Christian books which are written and found in borders, uh, popular bookshop at the moment, who does the honor go to? The honor goes to that person with the big picture on the cover. Right? I was thinking, hey, you know, when I look at my Bible, there's no picture of Jesus in it, right? There's no picture of Jesus on the cover. And uh, Jesus is not there for the honor for himself, but he speaks only God's word for God's honor. And all the more, when he speaks... He doesn't speak so that he would gain praise from the crowd and applause from the crowd. He speaks what God wants him to speak, even though he knows that it is offensive 
And it is hard, hard to accept for the crowd. But it is so hard for us to hear those hard, hard words of Jesus because morally we don't like to hear what God says and so many times we will turn against what God says instead. Last week I was reading, uh, just I don't know why, I, was just, I picked up a, a Bible commentary on a book of Job and uh, it was interesting because after reading it for a while, I wouldn't really call it a, a Bible commentary of Job, but I will call it a, a Bible criticism of Job, right? Because as I was reading it, the author was saying, oh, you know, uh, Job, right? Uh, the book of Job itself is sexist. It's not progressive. And it's not enlightened. And it was going on and on about all these things. Like, and I was thinking, hey, after a while, how, am I, are you really telling me what Job is saying? Or are you telling me what your opinion is, right? That I should listen to your opinion instead. And I was thinking, isn't it because the author doesn't want to listen to the hard words that actually comes out of, of the Bible? He would much prefer to criticize the Bible and say, this is wrong and this should be what the Bible says instead. Well, I think we should be very careful, isn't it? Because the crowd does the same thing. They are willing to listen to Jesus' words. They reject Jesus' words, reject Jesus because they cannot accept the hard truths that he's saying. Now the crowd goes on to challenge Jesus, right? And they say, look, you know, you're demon-possessed. Why, why, you know, we're not trying to kill you. And then Jesus goes on in verse 21. And here we need to, to read with a bit of background. He says, I did one miracle, <clears throat> and you're all amazed. Yeah, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a whole man's a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Now, this is where we really have to pay attention to God's word, right? And look closely to the text. Jesus did one miracle that amazed them when he was last in Jerusalem, and that was the healing of the paralytic who was paralyzed for 38 years. Remember? And he healed the paralytic on the Sabbath. And as a result, uh, the religious leaders were very angry with Jesus, and that had resulted in them wanting to kill Jesus. Now, Jesus then looks at the practice of the religious leaders and himself, and this is what he's looking at, right? So if you look at this slide, he says, look, uh, Moses had said these two things, but actually uh, the, the circumcision had come even before Moses, as we read earlier in our responsive reading, when God spoke to Abraham, or Abram at the time. And what had happened was, when a Jewish child was born, if eight days afterwards uh, it fell on the Sabbath, the Jews had a choice, right? They, they had two instructions from God. You must uh, circumcise on the eighth day, and you must keep the Sabbath. Okay, so there were two laws that God had given. But what happens when the two laws contradict one another? When the circumcision happened on the, on the Sabbath? Which one do you choose? Do you choose then to keep the Sabbath and not circumcise? Or do you choose to circumcise on the eighth day and ignore the Sabbath? Well, the Jews decided that the circumcision was more important than keeping the Sabbath. 
Because they said that on the eighth day, basically there was one small part of the boy which was imperfect, which needed healing or perfecting. Right? And they couldn't wait until the very next day, the ninth day, to circumcise the boy. So what Jesus says is, okay, if you want to apply your own principles to what I did, then this is what I did, right? Next slide. Well, I didn't just heal or perfect one little part of a person. I healed the whole person on the Sabbath. So what he's saying is, look, if you give your own religious leaders a free pass to heal or to perfect one small part of the body on the Sabbath, then why are you wanting to reject me and kill me when I heal or perfect the whole person, the whole body on the Sabbath? Why are you angry with me? And that's why he challenges them in verse 24. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Make the right judgment. And what he was saying to them was that you are making a snap judgment. You are your decision is too quick. You haven't thought through it. You haven't really pondered and come through with the right decision. Because just because I healed on the Sabbath, immediately you reject me and you want to kill me, but you actually reflect on what I'm doing and what I've done, you actually see that you need to respond very differently to me. Now, I was reading a book uh, a while ago uh, about the dangers of thinking too fast. Right? You know, if you think too fast, you can make mistakes. So anyway, there was an example they gave you. So I'm going to do this test on you, okay? This is just a test, alright? So I want you to do this um, test, okay? Think for a moment, huh? A bat and a ball cost $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. So how much does the ball cost? Okay, think quickly, think quickly, okay? Think quickly. Okay, how many of you think is 10 cents? Okay. Are you, then none of you think it's 10 cents. Is it 10 cents? Okay. Anyway, the right answer is uh, 5 cents. Next slide. Okay. Anyway, you can ask me about it later. Okay. Okay. So, so, uh, okay, but turn off. If not, people won't concentrate anymore. Okay. Okay. Now, now you see, that's the thing you see. Uh, for, if, if you did think quickly, I, I thought it was 10 cents. Okay, so, see one of the things is if you think very quickly, you can jump to conclusions and you get the wrong answer. Now for the Jews, especially for the religious leaders, for so many years, they built up this huge body of law about you cannot do this on the Sabbath, you cannot do this on the Sabbath, you cannot do this on the Sabbath. But Jesus says, look, you know, you have to, you have to make the right decision. You have to consider what I've done. You have to think about what I did on that day when I healed this man who was paralyzed for 38 years. What did it show about me? What was my identity? What is it a sign of? If you allow people, your own leaders, to heal or to perfect on the Sabbath, and I've healed even greater than that, then what does it show about me? But unfortunately, Jesus' diagnosis of the crowd is correct, right? They are making snap judgments about him and they're not actually considering who he really is. Because later on, look at what he says. Look, look at what the crowd does in verse 42 and 43. Right? Later on in 42 and 43, uh, or sorry, verse 41, says still others 
asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And thus people were divided because of Jesus. And some wanted to seize him and others, no one laid a hand on him. Now we know, right? we know, for those of us who have been following the book of John from the beginning, that Jesus does come from David's family and he was born in Bethlehem. But then why does the crowd then say that he is not? Is it not because they've already made a snap judgment and because they actually want to already, uh, I guess, find more and more evidence to support what they have already decided? See, that's the problem, isn't it? That the crowd isn't really interested in finding out more about Jesus. They just want to find out more and more things to support their decision about him. In fact, earlier on, uh, what they say here in verse 41 and 42 contradicts what they say earlier on. right? Because in verse uh, 28, he says, sorry, verse um, 27, we know where this man comes from, but when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. See, how can you say, when the Messiah comes, we don't know where he comes from, but then much, much later we say, hey, but, we, but the Messiah needs to come from a certain place. See, those two statements are contradictory. But the problem is, they actually just can't be interested to find out more about Jesus because they've already made up their mind about Jesus. And all they're looking for is more excuses to reject Jesus. Now, I think that for some people that I've met, that is the sad truth. I've met some people who spend more time finding out about the car they want to buy or the TV they want to watch or the specs of uh, you know, the tennis racket or the golf set they're going to buy than they actually spend on finding out about Jesus. That's really sad, isn't it? There are people who spend a lot more time finding out about the stereo system or the camera or the iPhone or the, any phone that they want to buy than they actually spend on actually finding out about Jesus. I remember a relative of mine and uh, I tried to share the gospel of Jesus with him. And he said, oh no, 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 I've already, I, I know everything about Jesus, I've already made up my mind about Jesus. And when I asked him, he said, oh, you know, I, I, I went to a, a Christian school when I was young. So I said, well, well, what is Christianity to you? I said, well, Christianity to me is, is uh, following the Ten Commandments. I said, oh, what are the Ten Commandments? He said, oh, I think one of them is murder. And he couldn't remember the rest. Now, I mean, to me, I was so sad, isn't it? Because here you have someone making a decision on totally, totally zero knowledge. For him, Christianity, life, Jesus, death on the cross was all a snap decision made sometime, made when he was a child and he has never revisited it. Now, how sad that must be to not actually think deeply about the things that really require thinking deeply about. Now, verse 37 to 38, Jesus will not let them go so easily, right? Because while all this is happening around him, all the people are arguing and, and un, being undecided or making snap the ju judgments. Look at what he says. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, right? He challenges the whole crowd. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him would later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had yet been glorified. Okay, that's a glorified word again. Now, I guess in our lives, thirst is not a very big issue because we, 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 we can drink water anytime. We've got water here. We can get water from the tap. Um, contrary to popular belief, uh, when you're really, really thirsty, what really satisfies is not Coca-Cola, but water, right? Water is what you really want when you are really, really thirsty. And especially in the desert, you know, when you're really parched, people are always looking for water. Water was what gave life. But even more importantly, I think that uh, in verse 2, it tells us that Jesus went halfway through the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, apparently, in, uh, in, ancient, in the ancient times, on the last day, right, when this is where Jesus stood up and shouted with his loud voice, come to me, right, I have the living water if you're thirsty. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, I don't have any pictures to go of it because obviously uh, there are no photos of it, the, the priests would bring these huge pitchers of water uh, while, the, while the choir was singing and they would go to the altar and they would pour these pitchers of water onto the altar in the temple. And part of the reason for doing this was to remember how God had provided living water through the rock when they wandered through the wilderness. But it was also to look forward to the Messianic age where God would, would bring streams of living water to the people. So what Jesus was saying was really significant. He was not just talking about water as an H2O. He was saying that he was bringing living waters that God was going to bring forever and ever in the Messianic age. And he says that by believing in him, the believer gets the Holy Spirit and within that person, that person has streams of living water flowing out from within himself or herself. Now, this is what it comes down to, isn't it? These are the stakes that are really at play here in whether you believe in Jesus or not. The crowd can reject Jesus because they make a snap judgment. The crowd can reject Jesus because they love evil. The brothers may not believe in Jesus because they want to set their own agenda. But these are the stakes, Jesus says. If you do not believe in me, if you do not come to me, you will not have streams of living water, you will not have eternal life. And what a tragedy that will be. Last uh, week, I went to a funeral and a wake. And I remember during the, one of the, uh, the funerals and the wakes, one of the eulogy, one of the uh, friends was sharing about how the only comfort that uh, she could gain from the death of the person was that the person was comfortable and died at home with people that she loved and loved her so much. At another wake and funeral, another person shared about how she gained comfort from a song from Tina Turner. And I remember the pastor, one of the services, was talking about how the person that died uh, was a believer in Jesus and how because she was a believer in Jesus, she would now have peace and eternal life and comfort. I think the problem was that when I was listening to all these sharings, I was also preparing this sermon at the same time. And it made it sound so polite, right? 
so inoffensive and so politically correct. But actually, Jesus is not like that. He's very emphatic and absolute and total, right? He is not somebody where if you just happen to believe this is what you will personally happen to you and uh, everybody else can go on believing what they want to believe in. But Jesus says very clearly, stop judging by mere appearances and make the right judgment. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. See, the greatest comfort we will get when we die is not that we will die at home among friends who love us and whom we love, and neither will the comfort come from a Tina Turner song. But the comfort comes because we know that in Jesus there is the complete guarantee that you have eternal life. So let's ensure that we listen carefully to Jesus and make the right judgment. Let us not listen with our own agenda. Let us not listen and make a snap judgment, a snap rejection. Let us not turn away from Jesus because we love evil. But let us really listen to Jesus and believe in Him. And then get the promise of the Holy Spirit and wells of living water springing from within us. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, indeed, even as Jesus came to Jerusalem and in His grace and mercy tried to reach out to that crowd, people were still unresponsive. His brothers, they were only interested in their own agenda, in their own program. They were not interested in God's program or Jesus' agenda. As he went to that crowd, people rejected him because they loved evil and they found Jesus' teaching too hard to accept because they didn't want to turn away from their evil and turn to God. The crowd made a snap rejection of Jesus. They were unwilling to to think deeply and make the right judgment. And again, they were confused and rejected Jesus. Dear Fathers, we come to you today. May we learn the lessons of John chapter 7. May we not turn away from Jesus because of our own agenda, because of our love for our own sin and evil, because we have made snap judgments. Help us to think deeply. Help us to consider what Jesus has done. Help us to see the miraculous signs that He did the wisdom of His teaching, and all the more, His glorification, going to the cross and dying and taking away our sins. Dear Father, we pray for each and every one of us here that indeed the Holy Spirit will be within us so that we will have streams of living water welling up from within us and springing out. That we will know that because of this, even when we die, we will not die but have life eternal. And we pray this for each and every one of us, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.